Good morning. I greet you in Jesus' name, and I welcome you here. I, too, wish to welcome our visitors. We're glad you chose to come here. Some of you are more visitors than others. Some of you feel like familiar faces back with us again, and we're, we're glad you're here, too. I could not help but think of the, uh, as our classes were saying their memory work, um, the continuity. Uh, it was basically a repetition, and then the verse Rachel gave was uh, saying the same thing in a different way. But the reason we have Christmas and the reason Jesus' name is Jesus is so he could save his people from their sins. You know, we, uh, we, we think of Christmas as a, um, as a fuzzy, well, maybe not a fuzzy baby, that doesn't sound right, but a nice cute baby in a fuzzy blanket laying in a clean manger. And it's, it just gives us warm and fuzzy feelings. And that's okay. I mean, that's, that's all right. I think that's appropriate. But it seems like the announcement of Jesus was pointing very much forward to his death and his resurrection. And I, and it occurred to me as I, as I sat listing those verses that if me or you, any one of us here in this room today has sin in our lives, we can't, we can't experience Christmas because we have not been saved from our sins. And woe on us if that is the case. Woe on us. Turn with me to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. I'm going to read some verses here. Then we're going to turn to Luke 1 read some verses, and then I'm going to do some more reading, and as we're doing this reading, I want you to think about what the common thread is through these readings. Matthew 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. And when he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus." Turn with me to Luke 1, chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. 
The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, <clears throat> thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said unto the angel, How shall these things be, seeing I know not a man? The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now I'd like to read from you what is known as the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the, uh, is kind of, um, well, it's the oldest confession that we have. Um, and it's a summary of what the, the, the people that put this together, this was put together in about 149 AD, which means none of the apostles wrote it. But it is what the apostles taught and it is what the people of that time put together as the summary of the Christian belief. And here's how it reads. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. I'm sorry, he descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, and we should probably understand that as universal, the Holy Universal Church, the community of the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I would like to read you one article out of the 1632 Dortra Confession of Faith. We believe and confess further that when the time of the promise for which all the pious forefathers had so much longed and waited had come and was fulfilled, this previously promised Messiah, Redeemer, and Savior proceeded from God, was sent, and according to the prediction of the prophets and the testimony of the evangelists, came into the world, yea, into the flesh, was made manifest, and, his, and the Word himself became flesh and man. That he was conceived in the Virgin Mary, who was espoused to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and that she brought him forth as her firstborn son at Bethlehem, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. But as to how and in what manner this precious body was prepared, and how the Word became flesh, and he himself man, in regard to this, we content ourselves with the statement pertaining to this matter, which the worthy evangelists have left us in their accounts, according to which we confess with all the saints that he all our hope, consolation, redemption, and salvation, which we neither may nor must seek in any other way. And one last reading here, which is Article 5 of the Garden City Confession. And the article is, is uh, named of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, 
that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, the perfect God-man, and that he was without sin, the divinely appointed substitute and representative of sinful man, paying the penalty for man's sins by his death on the cross, making the only adequate atonement for sin by the shedding of his blood, thus reconciling man to God, that he was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, and ever liveth to make intercession for us. Now, as you listen to those five that stood out to you, there may be more than one. As I, as I was reading, I thought, well, maybe there's more than one. Maybe it's not as obvious as it might be. Just quickly, anything that stood out to you? Seed of David. Seed of David, okay. That was a common theme for sure. All right, I, I, I won't belabor it, but because there is several, and I noticed that as I was reading it. But every one of these, in particular, emphasizes that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary, okay? Every one of them says this. I was inspired to talk on this subject, and I've entitled it this, Why Should We Believe in the Virgin Birth? Now, I I know that I am speaking to an audience, or I certainly assume I am, that has never struggled with the authenticity of what the Bible says that Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, I I doubt any of you have ever struggled uh, believing that, or, or, you know, how can that be, or whatever. And, and, And probably the reason we haven't struggled with it, or I haven't necessarily, at least, is because... I have been taught this, I can't remember. I mean, it just this is just something that has been taught to me as a factual piece of information. I have been taught that the Bible was divinely inspired. It It is just something that I believe by faith. I, I just believe that. However, it is not uncommon to find people that don't believe that. And I was reading an article, and if any of you get the sword and trumpet, you have read it perhaps too. And there was an article on there on uh, on the virgin birth, and I was inspired to speak on it from that article. And I will, for full, dis- I will admit for full disclosure that I did pull some of that some of that author's thoughts into my notes this morning. But just for instance. There is one writer in the New York Times recently that put it like this. The faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. Now that man needs to get an education because he, he just, he just says in that statement, that he does not understand that for many, many, many years, the virgin birth was not even anything that was discussed. It was simply believed. Now, there's no doubt that there's always been a certain amount of naysayers and doubters and people that choose not to believe this. But inside the, com- the Christian community, this idea that a person can take it or leave it, he can believe in the virgin birth or he doesn't have to and it all is going to work out in the the same way, is a very heretical and dangerous position to take. 
And again, I, I know that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. I know that. I know I am. But sometimes it's good for us just to have um, a bit of, um, to just sit down and think about sometimes the plain and obvious. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So why do people doubt the virgin birth? What is maybe the, the reason that we have at least a pronounced amount of people in theological um, places even that would, that would, uh, that would doubt this? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly try to define why it became um, somewhat of a more recent fact that's been doubted and and um, and criticized and so on. So up until the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, as I mentioned, Christianity as a whole, I don't care if you were a Protestant, if you were a Catholic, what you were, uh, you, you, you certainly um, had no problem with this idea that, that Jesus was born of a virgin. However, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we have this rise of what people then and now refer to as modernism. And modernism certainly left its influence on Christianity. And just to define what modernism is, was, I found this definition, and I think it's a good one. It's the attempt to connect traditional theological beliefs and teachings, which will include the supernatural, by the way, and make it fit contemporary thought and understanding, which generally uses science as its standard of, measure, of measurement. So as soon as you take that, that, that definition, modernism, immediately the Bible is suspect. Immediately it is. Because the Bible doesn't always fit contemporary thought and doesn't always, I shouldn't say isn't always, it is not bound by science. It isn't. Another, just to read on here a little bit more, how this came into theological circles. Unregenerate Christian professors in many European universities and seminaries had already rejected the word of God. So they gladly accepted the humanistic thinking of the day and set out to apply evolutionary thinking to the Bible and Christianity. The result was tragic. The Bible was considered merely a human book, inspired only in the sense that Shakespeare's writings are inspired. Jesus Christ was considered a mere man, good and helpful perhaps, but a mere man nonetheless. All right, so that kind of sets the stage for a lot of doubting to take place. Now, in that day, there was a there was a rise of a movement that we often call fundamentalism, which which the, these these good men seeing the attack that modernism and modern theological people had on the Bible, they they began to defend it, and and that whole discussion is beyond the scope of this talk this morning. But if you will read, especially like the, the older sword and trumpets, especially early 1900s, you know, George R. Brock one, he will often be referring to modernism and what a, what a, what a scourge this was on society and the inroads it was making into the church and so on and so on. And that's why it was, it was the, it was the 
thing of the day that was attacking the church from all sides. And so, the, so fundamentalism was basically a force that was trying to defend the historic tenets of the Christian faith. Well, we, not, we, we have passed the whole thing of modernism. We now live in what is called postmodernistic society, which, again, I'm going to read you a definition that, that I think sums up what postmodernism is. So postmodernism is an intellectual stance or mode of discourse that rejects the possibility of reliable knowledge, denies the existence of a universal, stable reality, and frames aesthetics and beauty as arbitrary and subjective. It can be described as a reaction against scientific attempts to explain reality with objective certainty, recognizing that reality is constructed as the mind tries to understand its own personal circumstances. Now that is an unbelievable, if you can, if you can get that all loaded in your mind with that saying, that is why we sometimes walk into, I don't know, places of pomp and circumstance and you will see a frame on the wall and you will see what looked like somebody took a paintbrush and just went like this. And it's called art. Because you can. It has no attraction, at least not to me anyway. It looks actually almost repulsive sometimes, but we can call that art. Because we live in it, it's all what you think about a thing. And if I decide that's beautiful, then it is, right? No matter how ugly it may be. And, and so that is where we live today. Not only have we now decided that, well actually, it says it right here in this definition, we are no longer using science as the as the standard of measurement. It's whatever we decide in our minds. Whatever I decide is true, is true. That's that's it, that's the end of it. So we live in a very very confused world. I guess is is what I'm trying to say. As I thought about it, <clears throat> I really think that postmodernism is a reaction to what modernism could not do for people. So when we took faith out of the picture and we said everything has to be measured by science, we found out that we hit a dead-end street there. What do we do when we can't explain X, Y, Z by science anymore? What do we do with that? Well, we'll just construct in our mind whatever we want to, whatever possibilities we decide is fitting for me, and that's going to be my reality. All right, so much for that. But that does set the stage for where we live today. Let's just quickly go through some of the common arguments that are used against the, um, what I'm going to say is the fact of the virgin birth. <clears throat> Number one, an argument that uh, many times is used, is that, th- that a baby can be born of a virgin is scientifically impossible. Anybody disagree with that? Well, that's, that's true. It is scientifically impossible. No one's going to dispute that. But the problem is, miracles don't have to be scientifically possible. That, that's where we part ways. It does not have to fit human rationale. And in this chapter we read in Luke, we didn't read that far, but if we would have went to verse 37, as Mary is actually having some thoughts in her mind about this whole announcement, the angel said, look, with, not, with God nothing is impossible, all right? 
You know, there is no point in trying to argue the event of the virgin birth or reconcile it to science because it simply can't be done. I truly believe that science will always get cornered at some point. And that is why, again, to go down a rabbit trail, even if you take the, the, uh, the theory of evolution, eventually you get to the end. Eventually you reach a point where it absolutely can't be explained anymore. And that's where you have to come up with a theory of some sort. All right, number two. This, this, um, this account of uh, Jesus being born of a virgin is only mentioned by Matthew and Luke. It is not mentioned by Mark or John or any of the epistles, per se. So the argument is, if the virgin birth is, is important, why isn't it mentioned more often than just in Matthew 1 and Luke 1? Why is it not? Well, I would, I would ask this question. Why aren't many things mentioned more than once? Um, you know, this is a favorite argue for many and various issues, for people that wish to have a personal agenda for, for one thing or the other. Currently, uh, if, if you have um, kept up with it at all, and, and bless you if you haven't, it does, I guess it doesn't, it's almost discouraging to, to try to keep up with it. But in this whole unbelievably ungodly movement in our country to set up a rationale for same-sex marriage, uh, that, that whole immoral lifestyle that we're all too familiar with in our society today, the argument in religious circles is that Jesus never once in the Gospels, never, ever did he condemn homosexuality, ever. Never said a word about it. And so if, if the man Jesus himself never condemned it, why should we? I, I, it's a very weak argument. Basically what you're saying is that um, the, the epistles are not inspired of God. The, the obvious, the obvious um, scripture in, in, uh, in, um, in the epistles that speak to that particular, um, particular subject are pushed to the side because Jesus never said anything about it. In this case, the virgin birth is pushed to the side by that camp because the epistles don't say anything about it. So you see what I mean? It, it, it becomes this, I'll set my own standards, and then I will decide whether this particular subject, whatever the case may be that that subject is, is legitimate or not. So if a, you, 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 this becomes completely arbitrary because... Perhaps whatever subject that I want to uh, determine God's will on, I will say what well, has to be mentioned five times. And if I can't find five times, well then then it, it then it's it doesn't mean anything. You see what I'm saying? You're, you're back to your postmodernism way of thinking that I will set the standard, and then the Word of God must meet that standard. So so why isn't why doesn't uh, Mark and John and Paul and Peter, why don't they mention the virgin birth? Well, the, 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 the easy answer is we don't know. We don't exactly know why they don't. I have a hunch that the particular subject uh, wasn't even one that the men of that day even maybe considered one day people wouldn't 
think as, think of as factual, and for sure not the, the Christian community. So, so we don't know. We don't exactly know why that might be, but let's just suffice it to say that um, while that may be true, it doesn't seem like it's a very valid argument. Because indeed, let's point out that Matthew and Luke do indeed in no uncertain terms mention it. The, to the fore is that every culture and religions have their myths, myths and legends. And this is just one more myth and legend among many that happens to be part of the Christian faith. Um, one thing we don't think about very often is we don't think about the Bible as being a history book. We think about the Bible as more a, a the inspired word of God, and indeed it is. But indeed, it is a history book as well. These were men that were writing about the historical events of their time. Luke sets out in the beginning of his uh, his gospel here, and he very thoroughly says that everything I wrote in here, I made sure was correct. I mean, I did my due diligence when I wrote this gospel to you, Theophilus. So, you know, skeptics will always abound. And indeed, there are myths and legends out there. Uh, but the virgin birth is not one of those. If, uh, if you have the time and you have the, the mental capacity, uh, you should listen to the minister's, the minister's uh, meetings down here at Maranatha. It's on our church's website about why we should believe the word of God. Uh, th- there is more documentation and more reason to, be- to believe that what the word of God says is true than there is not to believe such a thing. All right, so what are some reasons that you and I should accept the virgin birth as factual? All right, as I mentioned before, if for no other reason, Matthew and Luke clearly state that it did happen. Nothing veiled about the language, nothing allegorical or, or uh, any, any spoken in a way of a parable here. It is an easy, easy language we can understand that indeed it did happen. The other thing is, uh, speaking of Joseph, we talked a bit about him in Sunday school. But Joseph, it says, was a just man. And because he was a just man, he was going to put Mary away because of this incident. Very clearly, Joseph knew he was not involved in this pregnancy. He knew that. All right, There was no question in his mind. And he understood that this lady he was about to marry was with child. Okay, he, those two concepts he knew, alright? This lady I'm about to marry is with child. I have nothing to do with that. And so he was going to put this person away, marry away. But what happens? The angel comes and says, it's fine, Joseph, go ahead and do it, because what is in your wife-to-be's womb is of the Holy Spirit. Putting it in my words. And it says that Joseph accepted that and he took Mary for his wife. You know why I think Joseph did that? I think Joseph did that because for him, it said he was a just man. The angel told Mary that she was a a woman that was highly favored among women. Generally speaking, um, just men look for just women. Okay, Those two usually go hand in hand. 
I believe that Joseph found it more believable that what was in Mary was indeed of the Holy Spirit rather than some other man, that he was more satisfied with that answer than if somebody said that Mary was out laying around. I really believe that. It seemed like he had absolutely no qualms, no questions. I, I think he was like, well, of course. Of course this thing that is in my wife-to-be is of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not like her to do what everybody thinks she did. That's not the case. I, I can easily believe that this is more likely than what most people will think. Indeed, the fact that that Jesus was born of fornication followed Jesus through his life. He was accused of that in John 8. But again, if you will look at the uh, at uh, Simeon and Anna, good and godly people that I have no doubt were highly esteemed among the uh, community and communities in which they lived, instantly recognized Jesus for who he was. To me, I think God took the most upright people he could possibly work with and used those people to bring Jesus into the world. Number two, what other reasons are there that we can accept this virgin birth as factual? You know, the Bible in no way ever hints that this is some sort of a symbolic whatever happening. You know, that this thing, this thing of speaking of a virgin birth is somehow symbolic in some way. Isaiah 7.14, we read that this morning, Cleon did, clearly, clearly states uh, to the points to a fact of a virgin birth. And in Matthew 1, which we did read here this morning, clearly says that this was the fulfillment of that prophecy. And as I mentioned before, for roughly 1,800 years, there was this was an undisputed, factual event that the Christian church believed. And many of us still believe today. There's an important concept here. Um, when an event happens, any event, you, you name the event, uh, name, you know, the fact that you got married, you just name whatever it is. So it's a fact. It happened. The people around you that attended your wedding, let's just say, let's use that, they know it happened. Nobody disputed, nobody disputes it. And, you know, as oral things get handed down from one generation to the next, people for a long time believe that you got married, right? Whatever, whatever the event is. But, you know, now let's, let's add 1,800 years to that event, whatever it is, 1,900, 2,000 years. We're down here thousands of years. I mean, the, the eyewitnesses have long deceased. The books that record that particular event have long become yellowed and crinkled, and it takes science, scientists to read it now and stuff. Does the fact that it time has elapsed between the event and the particular time we're living in somehow nullify that the event actually happened? Well, the answer is no, it doesn't. It, it, that is the way it is with anything that happens. Time just moves on, and we are at some point, we have to rely on what we were given, on, on historical documentation. So there, there's, nothing, there's nothing naive about believing something 
as supernatural as the virgin birth that happened 2,000 years ago, and that somehow we are naive people because we believe that. We're not. We're simply taking the historical documentation that we have been given and saying, you know, that happened, and we're going to go on the best evidence that we have. You know, Jesus and his outstanding character and supernatural abilities also give credence to the fact that he was of God. Jesus one time said, whenever he had people pointing fingers at him, he said, which is harder? He says, is it harder to forgive a man's sins or tell a man to take up his bed and walk? And, and the same thing could be asked here in this, in this account of the virgin birth. What would, what would have been harder? Was it harder for God to conceive, to, to have Jesus be conceived in Mary's womb of the Holy Ghost? Or was it harder for God way back when, when Abraham was around, to have Abraham, when he's pushing a hundred, and his wife likewise, to conceive a child in their womb when they both knew it was absolutely impossible. Which was harder? Well, I, I'd say there was, there, it's, it's a moot argument. It's a moot point. They, they, they were likewise both hard, right? So indeed, um, if we can't, in fact, accept the virgin birth, then we can't accept anything miraculous. We can't accept the resurrection. We can't accept the fact that a blind man was made to see. We can't accept anything because have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried to tell somebody to rise and take up his bed and walk? I mean, have, you, have you done that recently? I'm not saying you couldn't. You, you, that God couldn't work through you to have that happen. My point is, if you could do that, everybody would say, indeed, a miracle has taken place. All right, We wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, have any doubts about that at all. With God, all things are indeed possible. The focus of the Christmas, Christmas story, number four and lastly here, is that it is on the baby and it is not on the intricate details and particulars of how indeed a virgin could conceive. You know, one time I read a story of a man that he, he had become a Christian and he, uh, he was meeting with his pastor, and, and they were ready to take him in as a, a member of the, his particular church, whatever it was. And he said, Pastor, I have one problem. He said, I'm a scientist. I know it was absolutely impossible for Noah to get all the animals on the earth on that boat. It, 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 it couldn't have happened. Well, I'm not sure how it all happened. But his pastor wisely told him, you know what? We're not going to dispute that. All we know is, is that whatever God wanted to happen there that day happened. And that's good enough. We don't have to sit there and go through all these details of how that happened. I mean, did they have to put barn lime down on that ramp for the cows to get up? Doesn't really matter, does it? Somehow the, the cows got up there. So, same thing with the virgin birth. Um, as I mentioned out at the beginning of this message, the fact that Jesus came to save his people from his sins is what really, really matters. But we have to believe in the virgin birth to make Jesus God, right? He couldn't have been conceived of... So the, the question could be asked, if you don't believe in the virgin birth, then you have to say, you have to... The question has to be answered, who indeed was Jesus' father? Who was it? And we run out of gas. We don't know. 
I'm going to read to you some uh, interesting scriptural allusions to the virgin birth, and this is what I got out of the um, the article that I read, and I thought these were very interesting, and I'm going to bump down through them. If you want to run, write down the references and look at them later, go ahead. I don't think I'm going to turn to them. But these were very interesting to me. In Genesis 3.15, I'm going to read this verse, very familiar verse, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now you think about that. It says that I'm going to put enmity between thy seed, referring to the devil, and her seed. I never thought about this before, but usually you would say his seed, not her seed. And People that have studied into the new, into the Old Testament say that's significant, that it was refer, that this verse refers to her seed, not his seed. Could well be an allusion to the coming Messiah. Isaiah 7.14, this is the obvious one. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Very, very easy to understand language there. Not even really an allusion. In John 1.14, another very familiar verse, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You could read that, and the word, which we know is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I believe this verse shows the incarnation of Jesus in human flesh. And while that doesn't necessarily demand a virgin birth, it does imply a supernatural entrance into the world. It doesn't say that the, it doesn't mention anything about being born. It says it it became flesh. You know, think about this. For Jesus to be flesh, he had to be, he had to have something natural about him. All right? So now we have, we have Mary. We have a person. For him to be God, there had to be something supernatural. So we have the Holy Spirit. The, 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 the bonding of flesh and God made Jesus 100% man and 100% God. And how that can be, I don't know. That, I, I'm not prepared to answer that, but we certainly have it that way. 1 Timothy 3.16, another very interesting verse. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Other translations would put it like this. God appeared in a body. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received into glory. The writer of this article points out that this thing of made manifest in the flesh or appeared in a body is strange language. You know, we, we don't refer to somebody, you know, Richard and Sharon had a baby that appeared in a body. Aren't we glad about that? You know, we, it's just not language we use. And so he points out that it's strange language to use um, or interesting, and perhaps could be a, an allusion to the fact that Jesus was indeed born of a virgin. He does preface it with this, great is the mystery of godliness. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God was sent forth, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. And just think about that, made of a woman, not born of a woman, it says made of a woman. Made under the law. Why the emphasis on the woman and no mention of a man? 
again, it seems it's just an interesting, somewhat unusual way of talking about a birth. Well, let's wrap this up. As I mentioned, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man so that he could be tempted and understand life as a man, be susceptible to failure, and yet be victorious. Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The perfect verse that says there's not a temptation you or I face that he hasn't faced as well, but he did it. He did not fall. He did not fall and trip into that sin. And there's other verses we could we could refer to. My time's running up. But just just do a study sometime. How many times in the Bible Jesus is referred to as God? He's referred to as man. And it just seems to be no problem. There, there is no issue with the writer referring to him as one or the other. It is so important that Jesus identified as a man, that he was born of a virgin. He had the flesh so he could experience the infirmities of man, and yet at the same time be sinless. So he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins and that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. Martin Luther had this to say. Martin Luther was known for a lot of pithy statements. And I'll have to admit, I'm not, I have a struggle maybe appreciating Brother Luther the way I should. Just because while Luther, while Luther did a lot in, in bringing to light the, the glaring inconsistencies of the dead church of his day, the, the poor man didn't he certainly tripped up plenty of times in his life and ended up being as much of a persecutor as the Catholic Church was. But anyway, there's a few things that he did get right, and this is one of them. He said the incarnation consists of three miracles. Number one, that God became man. Number two, that a virgin could be a mother. And number three, that the heart of a man should believe it. And I say amen. As a closing addendum, our forefather that we know of as Menno Simons, he had, an, he had a, a somewhat of a difficult thing with this virgin birth thing too. He could not, in his mind, rectify how any person could have any part of human flesh and live above sin. So he concocted, or he, he concluded, I guess you should say, he concluded that Mary was more of a surrogate mother for a holy man than she than than Jesus was having any part of flesh. Okay, it was somewhat of a flawed view, and it brings equally problematic and difficult uh, things that a person has to um, has to go to scripture and look at. And I just bring that up to say that. I think for, for many years, people have struggled with, how can this be? And I'll tell you how it can be. Isaiah 9, 6 tells us how it can be. It's actually in verse 7. I'm going to read it. Very, very, very familiar verse again. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. 
upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Now this last sentence tells you how it can be. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Is there anything that the zeal of the Lord of hosts cannot perform? In case you don't know it, the answer is no. I hope this message has been an inspiration to you. I hope that it has reaffirmed in your in your minds that the virgin birth did indeed happen. It is important. And it's important because his name is Jesus. And he came to save his people from their sins.